as I got into neurofeedback uh, before grad school, I was started being being blown away by the transformation. I'm sure you are you you were too when you first started seeing what it could do. Just magical mm -hmm. transformation, often in things that other stuff doesn't change in, to some extent. Uh, and what I found was as I got good at brain mapping and talking to people about the process of what was happening in their brain, it it created almost as much benefit as the in as the transformation they got from neurofeedback. The agency that you understand, if you see your anterior cingulate is crampy, and I can say, hey, that's a thing that shows up when you're a high-powered CEO, or if you have a little OCD, they can go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, cool, superpower, kryptonite, nice, okay, get some control over that. And it's not a disease, now it's like a quirk, it's a strength that's gotten a little dysregulated. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to the Collective Insights podcast. I'm Dr. Dan Sickler. I'll be your host for today. And we are happy today to bring back Dr. Andrew Hill to the show. Dr. Hill is the founder of Peak Brain Institute and a top performance coach in the country. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology and continues to spearhead cognitive research using EEG, QEEG, and ERP methodologies. Dr. Hill, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. Nice to see you again. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, we've been doing a, a big deep dive into COVID brain, and I want to ah. pick your brain on that one uh, here in a little bit. But um, you know, your primary modality is neurofeedback. So yeah. I really want to give the listeners an overview of what it is and why it's such a powerful tool. Sure. Uh, so uh, happy to chat again about any of this stuff, of course. Uh, neurofeedback as a tool set encompasses a few different things. Um, we often have an assessment tool we use called brain mapping or quantitative EEG in the field, which helps us do sort of that quantified self at the level of brain. The same way we often, you know, in, in biohacker world, we look at our functional medicine, our methylation, our genes, our uh, organic acids, and, and dial in potential models that may impact our wellness and may impact our health. But just like your genes, you don't necessarily know looking at one person's data, what it means for that person discreetly. Most of what we're doing in, in, in brain mapping, which is the assessment landscape for neurofeedback, is a population level tool set of saying, hey, here's some differences from average. Let's model what's going on in your brain. So the practice of neurofeedback is the modification and the assessment of the brain we call uh, quantitative EEG. So let me describe the mapping and then I'll give an example maybe out of what shows up and talk about how we would change it, you know, how we would actually change your brain. Because okay. um, that's the goal with neurofeedback, not so much diagnostic. Uh, from my perspective, but it's sort of focused on getting you to make some transformation uh, longer term. So brain mapping is a basically a cap on your head or individual wires on your head. Uh, for those of us who have great haircuts like you and I do, it's really <laughs> easy to find locations on our head. Um, although you probably had a few EEGs, it, it, it just as an aside, yeah. it's actually kind of hard to get good signals on bald heads, right? My, my texts have said that it is harder on bald yeah, heads. It really is. People don't, don't believe that because, yeah. well, we, you know, our, our skin is out in the air, so it thickens up and gets oily and, and more insulation. Um, the best heads are people with thick, dark hair. Yeah. For some reason that the, the scalp never sees the sun. Anyways, we put a cap on your head and measure your brain at rest. 
with your eyes closed and your eyes open. That's a quantitative EEG or brain map. And out of that comes population level differences. Oh, your theta, your alpha, your beta, whatever, are doing something different than average. And people are weird. So good job, be weird. But the things that get in the way are also a little weird. So you want to walk through the outliers um, and try to model what they could be doing. And we also do an attention testing suite alongside that to kind of have two axes to examine your resources, a performance and a physiology. And um, peak brain's a little bit un unlike most of the sort of therapy focused neurofeedback places in that we don't sort of say, here's your diagnosis, let us treat you, but more, hey, here's your data. Well, let's teach you to dig into it and read it and understand the phenomena. And our clients often map a lot throughout the year and have sort of open-ended access to digging into the data. And the stuff that shows up in brain mapping um, most reliably across people at a high level are the gross resources of stress, sleep, attention. And then you can get a little more granular with like speed of processing. And sometimes you can see things like brain, fo brain fog or other inflammatory things to get a little into that post-COVID brain thing you were mentioning. So you can see these gross features and then uh, often correlate them to performance, especially in executive function performance. If you're a little bit ADHD or you're impulsive or distractible, you tend to see that pretty clearly on a brain map. And then the process of neurofeedback begins, which is a form of uh, what's called biofeedback. So uh, people often are curious about the difference between biofeedback and neurofeedback and essentially all neurofeedback is a form of biofeedback mm -hmm. and uh when people say biofeedback they usually mean the stuff we did in the 60s and 70s a lot which is sort of peripheral nervous system based including uh hand warming uh, galvanic skin uh uh changes um with electrodermal biofeedback for relaxation um breath work breath work, heart rate variability biofeedback, which mm -hmm. is resurged in the past 10 or 20 years as a really approachable modality for getting into training the vagus nerve for controlling physiological balance between activation and you know, uh, relaxation. So that's biofeedback. And then when you go after the things for biofeedback that are sort of in the central nervous system, stuff inside bone, that, that's by the way, the definition for folks who are curious, peripheral versus central nervous system. If it's inside of a bone, it's central it's outside it's peripheral mm -hmm. you're somewhat aware of the peripheral you're not really aware of the central nervous system it doesn't have any sensory nerve endings inside of it you can't feel your brain so or your or the inside of your spine basically there's nothing in there really to feel except for the outer layers which have some sensory stuff when you look at your brain and you uh, uh, measure it in real time the process of uh, let's say brain mapping might show for one person, a little outlier and in going over the sort of description or the digging into what it could mean with them, you might discover something's, something's important. So let me give folks an example. There's a couple of circuits that are really visible when we have a lot of stress. They're called the cingulate cortices and they're in the front and back midline. And their job is to sort of switch your focus around when you need to do things different with your focus. Uh, and, and broadly, uh, might be useful to know that the front of the head is the inside world and the back of the head is the outside world. So the cingulates have sort of a corresponding relationship to switching your focus internally and externally. So the front midline helps you remember what you walked into the store for, and the back midline helps you go, ah, watch the road, or heads up, frisbee, and orient yourself to the important thing to quickly evaluate and, and orient to. But because the world is not especially safe or predictable, these, these resources can cramp up or spasm or get overused and become sort of stuck in high gear. 
And when the one in the back gets stuck, people tend to experience sort of cycling in this uh, evaluation state and orienting to what's important state. And this is not terribly comfortable and tends to produce the experience of rumination, chewing on things, being a little threat sensitive, being activated. And the front midline does a kind of a similar phenomenon, but almost purely cognitive without the worry. So it's perseveration or obsession, basically. So these little circuits, we all have them. They can cramp up and they produce flavors of anxiety, basically. When they get really extremely you know, cramped up, the front one produces OCD type stuff and the back one PTSD type stuff. But we all hyper-focus or, or select our focus and we all have threat sensitivity and an evaluation orientation. So these are not necessarily problematic, even when they're very, very acute in things like OCD and PTSD. You don't really have to think about this as a disease. It's not a progressive process. It's not caused by something like an infection. Uh, it doesn't have a, a root cause that where if you remove it, things go away. It's a dysregulation of a system closer to a spasm muscle or a, a functional imbalance in strength or something. And like a whole system, it tends to train. So now we're into neurofeedback. Somebody comes in, we look at a brain map. We say, whoa, your front midline's kind of hot. Uh, you might have a little OCD. Maybe you're a CEO, maybe both. Maybe you're you know, stuck in your head all the time. And if someone identifies that as a goal to go after to change, we would do some training with them. And it might take a, you know, a few weeks to start experiencing shifts subjectively and a couple of months to make some permanent changes. But we would do that by, in this example, putting some wires on those cingulates, on the scalp above the cingulates, and maybe an ear clip on, it's like three wires, let's say, and just measure the activation of those modes moment to moment, which is probably going to be like extra beta waves. And also measure the relaxation, the, the, the neutral of those modes, alpha, moment to moment. Now, a question it, that we, yeah. we get asked about this, because I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, no. Um, I want to get some clarity for, for the listeners, um, because we get asked this question a lot. You know, we're putting an EEG, we're putting electrodes on the, on the surface of the scalp, yep. and the measurement is right underneath where we're uh, doing this. So with the cingulate gyrus being a deep midline structure, how are we able to identify that that's where the signal is coming from? Mm. The cingulate is uh, so organized and so powerful that as a particular little circuit doing its job, it's a generator of specific information. And the mm -hmm. areas right around the cingulate aren't as specific. They're more connected to other regions. So you can see what are called the rich hubs or rich clubs of the cortex through the scalp. You can't see every little bit, but you can mm -hmm. see the big gross giant circuits that inter, especially ones that interconnect with other ones and do a lot of information flow. You can see the information flow and know the sort of endpoints, if you will. But the cingulates mm -hmm. generally stick up when they are uncomfortable, really easy to see through the scalp. You can also mm -hmm. see most of the big circuits involved with uh, auditory processing on both sides. You can see the circuits involved with sensory and social integration, which is a little further back on both sides, pretty clearly. You can see across the top of the head, big circuits involved with executive function and sleep regulation. Mm -hmm. So with that landscape, you sort of paint out a lot of the overlapping, uh, you, you can sort of estimate or model or guess about some of the underlying resources of a couple of, you know, essentially the foundation of sleep, stress, and attention. And those three things themselves each share underlying brain resource. So sleep and attention, attention and stress, uh, uh, sleep and stress all share uh, an, an underlying regulation. 
So with this perspective, you just know what's unusual. And this is why we were in the landscape of sort of personal training versus medicine, because it's not diagnostically valid to say, aha, your anterior cingulate's running more beta by three standard deviations. That's unusual. And therefore it's a problem. That last bit is not true. Unusual, sure. But does it get in the way for you? Is it interesting? Is it important? So it's just like, you know, you, you might look at your lipid panel and for some people, you know, having uh, one aspect of a lipid panel is really concerning for somebody else. That's eh, fine because like, you know, let's say your LDL is a little high. It's really a problem if your triglycerides and VDL are also high, but otherwise, you know, maybe you're a carnivore who eats no carbs and LDL is a little high, but there's no triglycerides, no VDL that you wouldn't be concerned about the LDL being a little high. Same thing with the brain map. If you're a little bit of anterior cingulate, but you use it successfully, you know, if your thoughts aren't having you, great. Then you're a hyper-focused Steve Jobs type and you're not a little bit obsessive. You're not uh, I was going to say, we've had, this, we've had this conversation before. Um, I think when we were in London, we talked about it um, because we we also evaluate based on performance issues. Yeah, and yeah. the problem is all of the uh, comparative databases are based on normative brains. Sure. And so, you know, if you go to a standard neurofeedback clinic or neuromodulation clinic, you're going to go in there and they're going to say, oh, you're two standard deviations away from normal. But it may be the gift of these high performers that we work with. And sure. you take that out and they lose that that talent that they had. Well, no one's trying. Well, in, in, in the practice of neurofeedback, nobody good is trying to train you to become average. That is not the goal. We don't train to mm -hmm. data. We train towards performance. So we always do attention testing alongside it. And then we approach things that are goal-driven. So let me give you an example of why you wouldn't just train the data. On the left-hand side of the brain, there's a circuit involved with maintaining the mode you're in. And it tends to fall over a little bit when we get spacey, like ADD stuff, but also when we can't maintain our deep sleep, sleep maintenance issues, we have fractured sleep. <laughs> uh, and the same kind of phenomena produce people that can't do boring things like reading or their mind starts to wander and do something else. It's a kind of ma management of the mode without the stimulus needing to be maintained kind of thing. And when you see on a brain map, a lot of the time you see extra beta waves there. And the person has some generalized anxiety and some sleep maintenance issues as a classic sort of phenomenon, extra beta left side, maybe in the middle a little bit. And so if this is true, the way that I would then go after it to make the change for the person to get them sleeping deeply would actually be to train the beta up on the left side of their brain. So I'm not training to the mean for them. I'm training for their goal using the database, using the yardstick, the somewhat arbitrary yardstick of a QEEG database as some measurement against them. So I can mm -hmm. then have something to look at. And yes, it's true that high performers have outlying features. When you're doing brain mapping, you don't assume an outlier is a problem, first of all, like I was saying earlier. But second, um, the stuff that's in the way is usually an outlier for people. Yeah. So you don't want to assume difference is a problem, but you also want to look at difference first to figure out if there's plausibility. So when I talk to clients, I'm not saying, hey, I'm not going to tell you what's true for you. I'm going to say, here's a real feature in your data, and then I'll describe what's plausible across people. If what I'm telling you is in the landscape of meaningful, you'll understand that you'll know it already. So brain mapping shouldn't really tell you things about yourself that you don't really understand. Those aren't the valid low-hanging fruit you can go after. And then there's this other, other inflection that when you do repetitive brain mapping, you know, Peak Brain has a, a policy of we do free brain maps for a year with our club membership. So folks just map and map and map and examine their nootropics and their post-COVID mm -hmm. and everything else that they do. But the maps within one person start to get really meaningful because you can 
correlate what the person's been doing with their transformation, neurofeedback or otherwise, or injuries, whatever, correlate performance changes, correlate brain changes. So we often encourage folks when they first start with us now to do what we call contrast mapping. If they have things in their lifestyle they really enjoy, like caffeine or Adderall, cannabis or nootropics or whatever, we have them do a couple of maps early on because I can teach you more about your brain, brain mapping and your substance of choice with that kind of contrast to data points because it really rings sort of true for you as the person seeing the consistency, seeing the subtle changes that you know how they feel. So yes. brain mapping is a tool of exploration, not a tool that's like, why aren't you average? Like, it's great. Good, good job. <laughs> but the classic anxiety features, the cingulates, the social and sensory areas, that kind of stuff, they show up pretty clearly. You can see motivation stuff. You can see the classic, you know, diseases of, of, of aging and big injuries, the frontal temporal stuff. You can see all the, the big stuff that people struggle with neurologically. Generally, you can see seizure disorders when they're active. You can see the consequence of seizure disorders when they're not like the deep fatigue stuff, which looks like apnea essentially. Um, mm -hmm. So you get these gross reads on people's performance, uh, physiology and performance, and then we construct neurofeedback. So to make the change, let's actually start with that, that sleep maintenance and ADD thing, because it's easy beta on the left, too much beta, sorry, too much alpha is ADD or spaciness in the left. Uh, bring up the beta means you can hyper-focus and laser-like focus if you want to. So people often love the left side beta training. So you measure the brain waves you're making moment to moment on your own in neurofeedback in, in most flavors. There's different of course, styles, as you know, but in classic neurofeedback, it's passive. And so you just measure what your brain is making. And then whenever mm -hmm. your brain happens to make a little more beta, let's say, or a bit less alpha, let's say for half a second, the computer goes, oh, good job, brain and starts to applaud you with audio and visual feedback. And the brain's like, hey, stuff's happening when I'm raising my beta, that's kind of cool. It has no idea this is not like some random musical instrument you're trying to learn, some new car you're trying to learn to drive. It's like, hey, wait, stuff in the outside world seems to be responding to me. Okay. Within five minutes, the brain is actually uh, picking up the neurofeedback response. That was my, my dissertation work actually, was doing a double blind placebo controlled study of neurofeedback with a 64 channel cap on top of it looking at the evoke potential, trying to figure out how the brain was actually starting to notice the neurofeedback, like when it happened, mm -hmm. how it was happening. In about five minutes, your very first session, the brain's like, hey, wait, what? Oh, okay, that's being applauded. Oh, I'm gonna react in that frequency. And then the big trick of neurofeedback for folks that are interested in the actual mechanism is we move the goalposts, that we, we adjust what we're asking for. So it's involuntary because you can't control your brain waves, they're fluctuating. When they happen to trend a little bit up or down in the desired direction for that particular workout, the computer applauds you with a little game in the screen moving or some audio happening or something occurring. And then when the brain moves in the quote unquote wrong direction for that workout, the audio slows down, the, the little car slows down, the Pac-Man stops eating dots, something decreases. Mm -hmm. And the brain starts to notice that of the billions of things it's doing, one of the very, very narrow, you know, a few different frequencies or a few different bands of amplitude or couple different communication paths for information flow are, are the thing that are being applauded. And it goes, huh, that's interesting. And people usually about three or four sessions into their first neurofeedback experience will have a subjective experience, but you know, not right away usually because the brain doesn't change rapidly, but somewhere around three, four sessions in the brain says, oh, okay, I'm getting more information as I bring the bait up there. I'm going to do that now. And you're yeah. like, Ooh, I feel kind of, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, do I? Yeah, no, I kind of feel something. And it's kind of this lingering background experience initially. 
And then you get a little flex. Every time you exercise the brain, do a little half hour of neurofeedback, you get a little flex for the next day or so in the thing you train, but also in the gross resources of stress, sleep, and attention. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the trick. You want to watch the things as they unfold the next day to grade the stuff you just did. So did you get some anti-anxiety effect? Great. But how is your sleep? Oh, I felt super chill, but I couldn't fall asleep last night. I was waking up. Oh, okay. Let's add some stuff in there. So you want to work the whole system out, not just work on the yeah. symptom. You can't just like do hot spotology as uh, one of the leaders in the field who does source analysis, uh, Pasquale Marquis disparagingly calls some old school neurofeedback hotspotology where you were sort of neophrenologists <laughs> saying this spot does this. And then you, you know, you work that way. Brain doesn't work that way. And people are different. If you and I had the exact same 10,000 foot brain map uh, and had exact same complaints and tried the exact same neurofeedback protocols, we would have different effects. Yeah. Just like two guys who look the same in the gym might have really different effects sitting in the same machine or trying the same workout or something. Just, you know, systems are different and brains are more different than bodies. Uh, so it's a little bit more of an iterative approach, but starting about three, four sessions in the brain starts to produce a little lingering effect. And then you get to sort of burgeon that effect by doing more of the same neurofeedback, um, peak brain maps the brain every other month or so when we're doing training. And we'd like to do two rounds of that to get to sort of a permanent change for things like attention, stress, sleep, the basic stuff, drinking too much, you know, uh, give seizures a certain amount of control. I mean, that's a chunk of neurofeedback, a big dose, so to speak, is about 40 to 50 sessions. And that tends to produce a lot of change. So we map every other month, every 20, 25 sessions at at our office. And um, we end up getting uh, something in the neighborhood for most people, something in the neighborhood of one standard deviation of change on their attention testing and their brain mapping every other month. Um, whether or not you come in for ADHD, you generally have some attention difficulty. If you have stress or sleep or trauma or something else, your attention takes a hit. Executive function is an expensive thing, a very high level human thing. And you see it pinch up when your sleep is crappy or your stress response is dysregulated. The executive function tends to uh, also dysregulate. So we see brain mapping like the, the cingulates, let's say in trauma or OCD, and we see the performance being a little off. Those things all shift by about on a bell curve, about a standard deviation as you go with this style of neurofeedback. Of course, there's different styles, but this classic style is really reproducible across people. And that's why I tend to use it. So it's a very low side effect, this the form that I use. So yeah. Do you do any objective measures of improvement in executive function or cognition? We do. We, we use an executive function test called the IVA, which is a mm-hmm. classic CPT, a, a continuous performance task that just bores you to tears. Um, all the I, all the CPTs that are well validated essentially work the same, and they all mm-hmm. correlate really strongly with each other. And folks may have heard of names like the IVA, the TOVA, the Connors, and all they're doing is flashing stuff or speaking stuff every so often and, and requiring you to respond to some things and not require uh, and not respond to other things. This is often called a go, no go test, for instance. Um, and we do a 20 minute, really boring attention test. We flash a one or two on the screen or we speak it over the speakers. And the only job is to click the mouse for the one and not click for the two. Yeah. But you start to brown out and slow down, maybe miss a one, maybe get reactive and click on a two. And we can tease apart the executive function in about 14 different little variables that are much more granular than something called ADHD. Because I'm looking at your stamina and the carefulness ability and the auditory versus the visual and the trends across time versus the transient resources. 
And you can really break down what's happening in the executive function that way. And these tests have almost no practice effect. They're a little sensitive to fatigue and stress. And they pick up a little variability of your day, but you can't get better at them by doing them more. So they're a great uh, test to do executive function wise. And they correlate very, very strongly with some of the big executive function things we see in, in the brain maps. So if you have a classic ADHD performance and it comes from ADHD style stuff, which it doesn't always in the brain, but a lot of times it does. And you go look at a brain map, you see high amounts of theta in, in impulsivity and distractibility. And you see high amounts of alpha with the eyes open in inattention or spaciness. And this is true in like a classic below 18 year old population, you know, whose diagnosis is ADHD. The theta beta ratio is above 90. It's like 94% specific for picking out ADHD. It's a very robust phenomena. And then you can see uh, alpha is also um, about 80% accurate. That was research done by uh, Vince Monastra, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And it was really, really robust and several people replicated it right away. It was just this big thing in the field. And then every couple of years, some grad student would try to replicate that study and they replicated it. But every year, the statistic got a little weaker for the mm -hmm. next like 15 years. And there's a, there's a great in the field of neurofeedback. I'm sure you know, uh, Jay Gunkelman, he was lecturing a couple of years ago at a, at a conference and he pulled up all this data from several of these studies. And then he pulled up a bunch of data looking at kids sleeping habits in this country across the exact same time. And what we, what we sort of demonstrated was that we were losing the sensitivity to spot ADHD in the brain mapping because sleep disruption was so rampant in the adolescent population, teen population, that it started to look exactly the same. Yeah. So chronic sleep depth in a, in a resting brain has very similar features to some extent, at least in the teen brains, adolescent brains, to what ADHD looks like. You know, so word to get your kids to sleep yeah we've uh we've seen a lot of that where the these kids get put on the adhd medications and they'll their performance will be good for about two years on it and then all of a sudden they're back to exactly where they were taking yeah. the medication even so we've we've had better results with uh, neurofeedback and neuromodulation um and, and that's a question i have i mean we've shifted a lot towards more towards neuromodulation yeah. um from neurofeedback, can, can you give uh, some insights on on your perspective on that? On, on neuromod versus neurofeedback? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't use any neuromodulation, not because I don't think it works, but there's a couple, the, 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 the positioning, if you will, of what I do and what Peak Brain does. I'm a scientist and a coach. You're a doctor. Mm -hmm. I have a PhD. I'm not a real doctor, you know, like, like there are PhDs <laughs> who are real doctors that they have licensure, they're clinicians and there's MDs who are all real doctors. And then there's PhDs, some of which are, you know, mad scientists and, and, and <laughs> academics. And I'm more in that landscape, but I'm an applied scientist for clients. So I end up being a coach as we do neurofeedback educator and a scientist as we do brain mapping. So I've worked in every possible clinical environment you can imagine over the past 30 plus years. And I have a deep, deep clinical experience working in crisis, addiction, autism, all kinds of things that are very, very clinical. But as I got into neurofeedback uh, before grad school, I was started being, being blown away by the transformation. I'm sure you are, you, you are too, when you first started seeing what it could do, just magical mm -hmm. transformation often in things that other stuff doesn't change to some extent. Uh, and what I found was as I got good at brain mapping and talking to people about the process of what was happening in their brain, 
it it created almost as much benefit as the in as the transformation they got from neurofeedback the agency that you understand if you see your anterior cingulate is crampy and i can say hey that's a thing that shows up when you're a high-powered ceo or if you have a little ocd they can go oh okay yeah yeah cool superpower kryptonite nice okay get some control over that and it's not a disease now it's like a quirk it's a strength that's gotten a little dysregulated and if you show people their brains and talk to them about what's going on it creates this opportunity for a lot of things that used to be really sort of shame filled and i was concerned about i feel like i'm failing at you can now be frustrated at your like you know metaphorically spasm shoulder or broken bone you see on an x-ray but you're not going to be ashamed of your broken bone probably and yeah. and seeing the realness of it people tend to reshuffle their relationship with this stuff and then it gets you to take chain, uh, uh, take control of it over time. So the interventions that I'm working with, I'm working with across people, across intervention, acute clinical stuff sometimes, but often peak performers, often everything in between. So um, at some of the centers I've worked at, I have used things like TMS and, and TDCS and other techniques like that. I've used um, light and sound work. I've used uh, all kinds of mag, mag stim historically I used to use the old Roshi, Roshi machines back when they were active mm -hmm. years ago. Um, I've used every platform pretty much that exists in the, in the landscape for, for neurofeedback that is both passive and active, so to speak, or the, the, the stem versions. I never found efficacy to be any greater for the things that I tend to work on across people um, with, with a neuromod that I've been using, had access to over the past, you know, 20, 30 years. And then as I moved out into being my own entrepreneur and company builder and coach, the, the, the side of things I fall down on are the non-invasive things. It's a lot harder to screw somebody up with, with, with traditional neurofeedback than it is with badly placed neuromodulation. You can do mm -hmm. more harm more quickly. Um, neurofeedback, if you do the wrong protocol, if it's not well suited for you, if the wire is too, too far away from where it should be, et cetera, you don't get the right effect. You get a little side effect. And then if you don't repeat the protocol that way, the brain goes back to where it was the next day. So you have this opportunity to like push things up and try stuff and irritate the system and enjoy it and play with it, personal training. And in that landscape, I haven't built in, uh, I haven't found some of the tools to be especially reliable in my history, but I haven't built in the things that require that deep, you know, sort of treatment focus, which is a medical you know, perspective, requires expertise and treatment. I've kept it in the training landscape where if I teach people about their brains, about their neurofeedback, about the approach, and they sort of take control, then it keeps me in a, it keeps people having the agency, which is very important to me, but it also keeps my company and peak brain in the role of coaches and doesn't replicate the sort of failure of neurofeedback to grow as an industry. This thing's been around for 55 years, you know, older than I am. And it's nascent still, the industry. It's got five, 6,000 people in the US. It shrunk over the pandemic. People are aging out and dying in the field. People mm -hmm. that invented this and discovered this are still alive, you know? <laughs> Some of the second generation who learned this are not because they've aged out, you know, of, of the process, so to speak. So we're still in this really weird, like, black art, lots of competing tools, lots of fringy science out there. And I don't like all the neurofeedback uh, that's out there. I think some of it is less effective or misses the point you know, or, or misses the, the impact or it's too expensive. You know, I'm a, a, in the biohacker world, I, my hunch is you're in the same position a little bit, but there's lots of interventions that are exciting. There's lots of things that cause impact. 
And there's lots of stuff out there that's nonsense. And yeah. some of the nonsense we don't know yet is nonsense, some of it we do. I position myself a little bit as a suspicious curmudgeon <laughs> in the field of biohacking. I don't yeah. want you to grab for the magical next thing. I want you to go after stuff that has been around for a few years, has almost no side effects. I really want to hew to the nootropic definition tightly, which is no side effects, very little downside, et cetera, in all the interventions I use. Because at least half my clients are extremely, you know, either high performers or squeezing up performance somehow and risking downsides for folks that don't have severe things they're trying to quickly change. It, it doesn't make sense to me to, to risk any downside. So this is why I never recommend people do like research chemical nootropics. I'm like, no, no, no. You want to do like all the ones that have been around for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, have tons of human you know, research, don't use this stuff that like has only been tested in mice and was dropped by, uh, you know, some pharma company because of the tumor studies that showed up. Don't use that stuff, you know, and don't <laughs> use the stuff you get from Russia that has, or China that has lead in it and has semi-addictive properties and stuff like that. So I tend to be a little bit like, not dismissive, but I guard the, the tool sets we recommend. And I recommend a lot of the basic stuff and biofeedback in the body, HRV, for instance, meditation, a lot of sleep hacking, uh, a lot of neurofeedback using um, brain mapping driven stuff. We also do a lot of HEG neurofeedback, which is infrared oh, yeah. blood flow training. Yeah, um, That's hugely impactful, by the way, on post-COVID brains because it's vascular yes. training. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other piece of it that I tend to bring in is metabolic biohacking. You know, I teach people about the ways to partition energies and control the circadian system as well as your internal energy, uh, uh, sensitivities, energy flux. I, I believe that a failure of energy flux is behind a lot of the root of aging and illness. Um, I, I think energy flux is going to be the new inflammation, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, everything's inflammation. I think now it's all going to be about like resistance to the energy levels, you know, insulin resistance, hyper, hyper, uh, insulinemia or high blood sugar. We now know that a lot of the post-COVID brain fog stuff, a lot, a lot of the post-COVID brain study out yesterday suggesting it's way more prevalent than we may have thought it was. Um, but a lot of it seems to be driven by having underlying inflammatory clotting cascade or some other systematic problem that is a metabolic issue to some extent or a natural variant for you. I mean, I have a, for instance, just to share personally, I have a lot of Leiden factor five both personally and in my family, there's a huge amount of mm -hmm. Leiden 5, which is a clotting uh, uh, difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people clot way too easily, essentially. And if you're women, you tend to have a lot of miscarriages. Surgeries are often complicated. And my family's had a lot of problems with COVID uh, uh, for several generations that were older because of the Leiden 5. Not much mm -hmm. you can do about that. But the I think we're starting to see that people that get hit with COVID harder, that have more long COVID, it's the same set of risk factors for accelerated aging, uh, for metabolic dysfunction. Like there's a big driver, you know, Alzheimer's, for instance, is a type three sort of sugar dysregulation, diabetes in the brain with oxidative stress. But I think if you have that hyperinsulinemia or you have the sort of inflammatory cascade of lots of adipose load, I believe that's what's driving the incidence of long COVID to be quite high. Uh, my well, I've, seen, I've seen a yeah. lot in our practice because um, we we map all of our clients every year. Sure. And so we had a, a nice visualization of the way their brain changes 
changes occurred after COVID and they had exactly. symptomatology associated with it, even when they had mild COVID um, and yep. then getting their brain, it was nice to have that pre-COVID baseline of their brain where we could actually see what was happening and we could work with them through neuromodulation or feedback yep. to get them back yep. to that, that beautiful baseline that they had. But, you know, it's interesting the, the data. So we started seeing this um, early last year and and then the data started coming out of the the impact of COVID on the brain uh, and it's scary i mean we're what was it uh, there's a 0.3 percent volume reduction even with uh, mild COVID that they found i mean that, that that's equivalent is, with alzheimer's and age-related brain you know three percent is age-related brain volume decline yeah and they were predicting a tsunami of dementia in 20 years yeah, based absolutely. on the fact that everybody's aged so quickly in the brain from this yeah, it's kind of like everyone joined the NFL for four years and you know played rough. Essentially, is what it seems to be. Um, I same same thing. I have thousands and thousands of clients before COVID. Many have come back, unfortunately, shook their brain out uh, after COVID, with COVID, post COVID. So much of it's I mean, not it's not all perfectly consistent, but a lot of it is. 70, 80 percent of what I'm seeing is very consistent in terms of looks very concussive, looks like they may have mm -hmm. had an, uh, you know, some sort of inflammatory insult, often lots of delta on both sides of the head. Of course, that's not really about the localization. I mean, it might be because of old concussions. I, I do see old, I see new COVID impacting old injuries that I know were there. I see it blowing up inflammation, but I also see temporal lobe uh, delta signatures in a lot of people. Usually it's low power right after COVID and high power later on. And mm -hmm. I think what's going on is the big blood vessels, of course, that feed a lot of the brain come up through there. And I believe the brain tissue itself must regulate some of the metabolic draw through those blood vessels. So we're seeing less of a global demand of fuel and the local temporal lobe, big blood vessels and the tissue around them is looking sleepy because of it. I think what's happening. Um, yeah. But it looks very much like somebody who's gotten a brand new concussion or has had gotten really thrown off and they're like stopped using a CPAP, their apnea is back hardcore, or they gotten a mild poisoning or, you know, a mild drowning or something, not mild drowning, but it's that kind of thing. It's a metabolic hit. So have you seen a lot of the blood flow changes with the HEG analysis pre and post COVID? So the HEG I use as a intervention, not as an imaging tool. Um, I okay. just use a passive camera to measure the heat efflux, the, the outthrow of the brain and then people concentrate and they do vascular training that way. Um, uh -huh. I find that it's impactful to change it. And then you end up changing the brain maps pretty well. Uh, you change them faster than without than with just doing the EEG training. I also tend to have a lot of people, depending on their access to resources and facilities, I have them stack in hyperbaric if they're doing uh, uh, yeah um, post COVID remediation. I, I treat it like a post concussion protocol, and I bring usually a hyperbaric center or two online uh, in their neighborhood. You know, I, I find someone to work with, and um, we stack the two interventions. Although you got to be kind of careful because they can stack oddly with neurofeedback and hyperbaric medicine. Do you, do you use the, the hard chambers for the uh, hyperbaric? Only, yes, so, only yeah. actually. And yeah. I, you know, again, curmudgeon in the biohacker world, I'm not a big fan of soft chambers in general. Right, um, uh, one of our research guys are working in-house in is working on now on a study looking at the impacts of pressure levels. So we're mm -hmm. going to try to put some stake in the ground, some answer this. But what I see and what I understand about the landscape and how I use it, which is 
you know, sort of the, the important part for me anyways, is I use two atmospheres whenever possible. I recommend two atmospheres whenever possible. Yeah. Um, and I recommend for post COVID like protocol, like five days a week, two weeks in a row, 90 minute dives, pure oxygen, high, high flow, you know, 10, 20, uh, PPMs, yeah. uh, two, two atmospheres and that level you're getting up in the five to 600% oxygen saturation. You're getting into that acute anti-inflammatory effect, which people are looking for. You're also getting, when you pulse it several days in a row, the hormetic stress that causes like anti-aging and stem cell release and telomere lengthening. So there's a bunch of reasons to do it, but I find people get a initial resetting sometimes. Not everyone has access to it. And so when those things aren't true, I can bring the HEG in and it seems to work as well, if not sometimes better than the hyperbaric medicine because it's focused on the tissue. It's bringing oxygenation yeah. to a local region. Um, and I also have folks do uh, sort of, you know, old school 80s bodybuilder diets, you know, Vince Garanda style steak and eggs for <laughs> six weeks and going, you know, no carbs. Um, uh, I'm not a keto guy, high fat. I'm a protein focused bi biohacker mm -hmm. where I'm just like, you know, okay, protein first, get the satiety, get the signaling, trip mTOR drop carbs to basically nothing for six weeks and keep your fat, half your proteins to avoid mm -hmm. tricking, to avoid, I don't want you die ketones in your blood, ketones you're, gen you're generating from digestion. I'm less excited about for this. I'm yeah. much more excited about doing downstream ketosis, which essentially you can't measure in your blood. Uh, well, you can, but it's, it's not really uh, stable. So you want to measure things like breath. I use a, the biosense device to measure ketones in the breath. Mm -hmm. Um, and after a few days of no carbs, you generate, you blow off ketones as acetone in your breath. And after three weeks of hanging out there, you end up starting to use ketones really nicely. And ketones work to do really lovely things, anti-inflammatory things, they repair tissue. The ketones actually go through the brain cells and replace molecules in the cell membranes. Like those Japanese kintsugi bowls, you break the bowl and make a nice new bowl with gold. Yeah repair and it's nicer the, the the gold's nicer than the clay was that's what happens the ketones are yeah, yeah exactly the, the ketones are oxidatively resistant structural machinery not just fuel when they use as fuel they're also used as structural repair that is really resistant to being degraded in the future so six weeks hardcore carnivore diets protein focused as your core macro keeping your carbs very low and your fat your fat moderate is is a that plus oxygen of some sort breath work hot and cold contrast creates oxygenation heg hyperbaric some neurofeedback those are all my tools for addressing this stuff do you have any experience or knowledge with nears the near infrared sure i've used it with imaging um uh -huh. right when it was first really getting developed we got a a device sent to us from a japanese lab at ucla when i was there and we did some imaging with it and I was actually doing, um, it's interesting because the imaging is not as sophisticated or as precise as I expected it to be. It's a bit of a coarse yeah. phenomena. Um, there's also a, in, in HEG, in the, in the tool set, there's two forms. There's an NIR form and it's a PIR, a near infrared and a passive infrared. Mm -hmm. And NIR is an emitter. It sends infrared light out. And then the biofeedback device has a receiver to measure the change in red levels. And that's mm -hmm. an oxygenation proxy. I don't find that one to be super impactful. I use the passive infrared as measures like the big giant heat coming off your brain. PIR, yeah. HEG is invented by a guy named Jeff Carmen for folks that are curious. Um, so I, for me, the, the, uh, the tool of NIRS imaging is an imaging tool. And if I'm getting into the imaging in that depth, I don't love 
metabolic imaging because it's hard to do cognitive neuroscience because of transient events. So for mm -hmm. me, metabolic imaging isn't that exciting. So that's why I'm not into SPECT either, like Dr. Amen is. It's metabolic imaging. It doesn't pick up the, the transient stuff, the mechanisms necessarily. It picks up global, you know, regional stuff instead. And uh, for me, the brain mapping, the QEEG, the EEG is, is sufficient to some extent to pick up um, what people care about. <laughs> so NIRS is expensive as a device. Yes. And I find it kind of like SPECT, where if you are Dr. Amen or someone who works at the Amen Center is very heavily trained, then you can read SPECT. But if you're not, you can't. But QEG, yeah. any neurologist, any neuroscientist, anyone who's like has been trained to do it has a set of the same resources to start from because you have a population mean kind of comparison and we know what EEG is. So for me, it's operating in a much more accessible landscape in the neuroscience. And then I'm often in the job of, of trying to transfer that knowledge instead of creating a transference where we create a little container and then you get to work through your psychology. I thrust agency back up on you by teaching you your own neuroscience, you know? Well, so I, I want to go back to something you said about, um, about the nootropics and research chemicals. So I'm, I am kind of the mad scientist in the medical community, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so I test a lot of things on myself and, you know, a lot of these research chemicals are actually have some pretty good data behind them, some good research. Uh, they're actually approved in some countries, not ours. Yeah. Yep. Um, things like paracetam and nupept. Um, sure. I mean, they. Well, racetams are pretty safe. And when you get into peptides, I think the landscape is getting well, well established and use a lot of peptides, I believe. Right. And that's yeah. well understood. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about like the metabolic biohacker peptides, like carterine and things people are out there taking that are potentially pro-cancer and potentially, you know, like, I'm not even a big fan of, I, I, a lot of my biohacker friends take metformin to delay aging. And I don't think that's necessarily established as safe yet to manipulate. Well, until until the like tame study completes, which hopefully will be soon. <laughs> so, but again, my, I, I'm, I'm conservative here. I want to take an approach of like, if there's a problem, then you introduce risk. If there's not yeah. a problem, you go after things. And I would, if someone's like, I want to try peptides, I've had clients like this. I've sent clients to you. Oh, well, go see Dr. Dan, you know, because he knows. <laughs> Seriously, I've done that. Um, yeah. And, oh, I don't know, but you're interested in that. And I keep, you want to do that? Okay, here's here's someone to go talk to. That's their expertise. So I'm happy to sort of, you know, chaperone or quarterback some people's goals sometimes, but yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want to be introducing risk for clients in a coaching right. and, and it, so. you know, especially in the, uh, in the coaching world, I mean, suddenly, uh, you get slapped with this practicing exactly. medicine without a license. Exactly. I don't want to, I, I, I'm, I'm extra sensitive, not cross that line. I don't have the, in some ways freedom mm -hmm. to, I mean, good doctors are out there at the edge of research and science, figuring out what um, in the research landscape is worth translating into practice. That is the role of a translational practitioner. You. I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of um, a lot of these new uh, research studies. Um, particularly, um, we met with um, the University of Texas um, new psychedelic research division, oh, cool. and um, they were interested because we had discovered that using ketamine nasal spray prior to uh, doing interventions with the neurofeedback or neuromodulation. Uh, we really accelerated the process. Um, we don't know if it's related to an increase in neuroplasticity, a, a disruption of the default mode network, 
what is actually happening oh, there. Probably, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's been uh, ask ketamine. Is that what you're using? Yeah, it's it's the ask ketamine. Interesting. Yeah. I've had some clients um, do ketamine infusions. Of course, I've had a few recently get into the ask ketamine as a uh, a tool, and it seems to be rather exciting. Uh, yeah, what's happening there? So that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, that no psychedelics. I mean, psychedelics are looking really good too with uh, some of the the yeah. adjuncts to the neurofeedback and neuromodulation for sure. And that's a massive plasticity boost anyways. I, mean, I, I find anything you add to neurofeedback that boosts plasticity in, 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 interacts with neurofeedback. And neurofeedback itself, one single session has been shown to dramatically increase plasticity for 24 hours in the tissue. Yeah. There's some really good research on that, looking at uh, the, the threshold of firing of tissue after a single session. Um, so I, I, I still think though, you, both of us are operating a landscape that is partially art and yes, there's a certain sure. amount of risk tolerance and decision-making and expertise that's brought to bear. You're doing it as a doctor and I'm doing mm -hmm. it as a coach. And we mm -hmm. happen to have an overlapping tool set and the places where they don't overlap, I would assume are places where we're getting a little more specialized, but yeah. uh, I'm not you know, like if I had needs that where research chemicals or other things involved, I would be consulting with someone like you. I wouldn't avoid them. Mm -hmm. But when someone asks me how they fix their brain fog, their trauma, their ADHD, their seizures, their migraines, I have reliable solutions for almost everything people come at me with without needing to reach for those landscapes generally. Yeah. So. Now, I'm, I'm sure you have the people like me, though, that they come in doing something that is not yes. really uh, recommended by us all the time. We actually will yeah. test them and actually see what's happening with them for their their purposes. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm here in Southern California. We, of course, have offices, uh, a few of them in the country, you know, uh, New York City and St. Louis are not quite as permissive with, uh, although I guess New York, New York is now with cannabis, but not not Missouri, but I, I can't tell you the number of maps I have from individuals where I have a clean, a caffeine, a cannabis and Adderall or something yeah. in, a, in a little four set. Um, so I've learned more about what cannabis does to the brain, Adderall does to the brain, COVID does to the brain simply by working with individuals. So uh, let me ask you this with the cannabis, we're seeing very negative impacts with the brain. Um, yeah. I mean, are you seeing a similar trend with that? When you say a negative impacts in the brain, I don't see any negative impacts with chronic users that are, I would attribute to cannabis. No. Okay. But I do so see. We're seeing a global slowing of the um, mm -hmm. resting alpha. I see uh, that when there's cannabis in their system. I don't see it when, okay. when they've washed out. Okay. Um, I also see some people uh, who are long-term users, like very long-term. Um, I've had a couple of people do this uh, as like little experiments, like a magazine sent them in, they did a little experiment, like a cannabis magazine. And they washed out for two weeks to have a completely, because cannabis, um, no one tells people this, by the way, cannabis only has an active half-life, uh, elimination half-life of like an hour, hour and a half. Uh, yeah. People think of cannabis as many days because that's the thing people test for, not the actual cannabinoid yeah. the psychoactive. <laughs> Um, so if you do, uh, if you're a regular user of cannabis and you measure someone's brain 48 hours without cannabis, there's really no act. There's really no, nothing visible anymore. The brain is back to baseline, but there's an yeah. adaptation to, to chronic cannabis use. It's not really addictive, but it is sort of adapting and you need about four or five weeks to, to adapt back. I've had okay. chronic users come, come in six weeks, eight weeks after I've been sober for six, eight weeks, kind of weird. 
And then we map their brain, they get stoned, map their brain again, do performance testing, both conditions, et cetera. And they're better when they're high. Wow. The brain looks better, performance is better. Some people, it's not just an alterant, an adulterant, it's self-medicating, I think. Just like, I, mm -hmm. I don't understand exactly what's happening. Some folks' brains look jacked up on caffeine and worse, some look better. Yeah. That's a kind of thing. Um, but I've done hundreds of people's brain maps with and without cannabis and, mm -hmm. you know, like active cannabis in their system, real, like they, you know, they, they, uh, alter their brains and remap in real time. Um, every single time, well, 99% of the time performance takes a dramatic hit. Uh, 99% of the time you see sort of that increased slow brainwave stuff. You see alpha slowing down, which is, that's why motivation tanks, by the way, alpha is your speed of processing. So if you're alpha slows down with weed it's like driving your car with the emergency brake stuff a little bit you're like oh too much yeah. work <laughs> um so but these same people i mean i i have worked with again southern california i meet a lot of them but like people that are lifelong users i don't see any real impact long term interesting uh, and and i think that i mean i and i've been asked this question a lot by parents i've been asked this question a lot by my students when i taught at ucla for a long time about cannabis and I've dug into the research and I think that my take on this is how weed affects you is a lot more uh, impacted by other aspects of your life, especially socioeconomic status, previous health status, previous nutrition status. It doesn't seem to be about the weed so much with one exception that if you have any of the genes or family predisposition to the bipolar schizophrenic stuff, stay the heck away from weed because it seems right. to potentiate that. But barring that, as long as your brain's finished developing, you know, you're essentially a young adult or above. Um, I don't have any real, you know, I'm sort of agnostic to cannabis because it's such a giant, I mean, as of three days ago, even Joe Biden's talking about it. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a sea change, obviously, in this country with regards to it. And I don't mm -hmm. think it's a unilaterally good thing either. I'm a, you know, I, I, I treat cannabis and people ask me about it just like food or sex or television or anything else that is rewarding that we interact with. You probably don't want to abstain from food or right. TV <laughs> or sex, or you, you can, but you know, you don't have to, and you can't do it from food. Well, anything that's rewarding, we have to have a relationship with it's healthy. And I really do think that humans have been altering brains since before we've really had them in this format. I mean, mm -hmm. birds will look for fermented fruit juice and get drunk and stuff. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we're, 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 we're very excited by altering our, our, our mammal brains. I don't <laughs> think there's we're anything ecstasis junkies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and we do ecstatic work and we dance and we sing and we feel love and we have passion and anger. We like the, the, the intensity and the experience and, and, and it means something to us. You know, we have a, a personal mm -hmm. experience with it. Um, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of having personal experiences across the landscape. Yeah. But when you get dysregulated, that's when I get very concerned. That's when I'm like, showing someone that, that their cannabis use is jacking up their anxiety markers, making their ADHD go up by three and, yeah. you know, in, increasing their reaction time and making them super error prone or something, <laughs> you know? So it's all educational though, to figure out how this stuff works. Well, Andrew, as usual, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, but ah. I know you, you have uh, a schedule as well as myself. Right. Uh, how can listeners get in touch with uh, Peak Brain Institute to, to get involved? 
Yeah. So we have some physical offices in New York City, LA, St. Louis, and also uh, Orange County, California. About three quarters of our clients work with us without, without ever visiting an office now. Most of our programs are remote. We can send you gear, do brain mapping with you, do neurofeedback with you uh, without coming to the office. So just check us out at peakbraininstitute.com or most of our socials are Peak Brain LA because that was our first office. Mm -hmm. And uh, check us out, ask us your brain questions. We have some free mindfulness groups online that are continuous. Um, and then you can get into the, the discount brain mapping program, all of our podcasts. Whenever I do a guest spot, we, we discount the club membership. So if folks want to come in and get their brain mapped. They have a year of access, a nice, really lowest, uh, lowest rate, best deal in the country for brain mapping. Uh, so we'll turn all the, I, I can tell you, I mean, having regular brain maps is, is, I mean, it's as important as going for your annual checkups with a physician, that annual brain map is so key to really understanding changes and catching them early before they can. And not just problems. I mean, when you understand how you work, you can then, you know, if I see that your delta waves and alpha waves are off in speed, I'll maybe tell you about your, you know, a couple of circadian tricks and then you dial them in, check it later. Hey, I feel better. My alpha yeah. speed's back. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing I like, I, I have a lot of parents give their kids sleep trackers and teach the kids about sleep. And then when those kids are in college 10 years later, they know how to get back on track after an all nighter or after they push themselves too hard in some way. A piece of it's so key. So I'm a big fan of the of the data first approach. Yeah, so for sure. All right, there, there, there's our soapbox. Thank, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for uh, being on. And we appreciate it as usual. Definitely. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.